Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first three verses. If you don't have your Bible, no problem. It'll be up on the big screen for you. This is our CrossFit teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. The title of this weekend's message is A Changed Life. Kids say the greatest things about God. It's a book I have here in my hand. And uh, hundreds of kids from ages 2 to Two to 10 were asked uh, very simple questions. They gave very profound answers. I wanted to read to you a couple of these answers here. One question was asked, what does crucifixion mean? What does crucifixion mean? Listen to a couple of these responses from kids. Crucifixion is how God fixes everybody up. Good answer. Good answer. Here's the next one. It means God hates sin but loves you a lot. That's a great answer. And then the kids were asked this question, what does resurrection mean? (laughs) You can only imagine what they would say here. Check this out. It's when you get a Christmas tree that you plant back in the ground so it will grow and not die anymore. (laughs) I guess that would be kind of a resurrection, wouldn't it? But uh, the next one was resurrection is what Jesus did after he died and right before he put the crown on his head. It's good, it's really good. So we are here to celebrate the crucifixion, resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And through that, we have a life most people only dream about. We have a fullness of life, we have a a changed life, a transformed life. So how does this life change? How does this life change happen? How do we experience this fullness of life? That's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Before we head into our text and work through our notes, let's uh, bow our heads and let's pray. And then we'll dive into our text. Father God, it is through the indispensable and infinitely costly death of your son that you have restored us to a place of favor and friendship with you. And it is through his resurrection that he proved to be who he said he is, the very Son of God in flesh, defeating sin, Satan, death, and hell. And we ask that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we may know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, giving us a changed life, a whole life in a broken world, a life beyond our wildest dreams according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. And we pray these things for your infinite and eternal glory in our deep and durable satisfaction in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Doyle, just just a tad more if you would, please. Thank you. So let's read this text. And... uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. These are people that are getting the living daylights beat out of them because of their faith in Jesus Christ, so they're being scattered throughout this, the region here. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge. Now, he doesn't waste any time whatsoever, the writer here, and he goes right into the gospel. 
right into the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. He says, according to the foreknowledge of, of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then this is just, a, just an exclamation. I mean, if you really understand what he just said, you'll go right through the roof, and this is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation mark, according, he's gonna define this changed life that we have, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, a changed life to a living hope that's not a, I, I, you know, wishful thinking. This is I know so, not a, I hope so, but it's a, I know so. It's a confident, joyful expectation through, what is it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, anytime you study, the, study a, a book of the Bible or a letter of the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, you always want to ask uh, some basic questions such as who's the author, who's the audience, and what's his agenda, kind of to set the pace for you. And so that's what we're going to do on the notes. And then we're going to take a look at the gospel that, that he presented here to us. That's really the foundation of this understanding of what it means to find wholeness in a broken world. So first of all, the author, Peter, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. Who's the author of First Peter? Peter. Well, that's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious there. And so... Uh, Imagine what it would be like to receive a letter from someone who was a personal friend of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Well, that's what we have. That's exactly what we have here. Not, we don't just have one letter by him, but we have two. This is a guy that encountered the, the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he, he was with him for three and a half years. But not only do we have his two letters, but we have a New Testament that's packed full of, of letters and writings by people who knew the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so pretty phenomenal. So let's kind of walk a little bit through the bio of Peter to understand him a little bit more clearly. Peter is known as the thundering paradox of a man. And if, you, if you've studied anything about Peter, he seems to be the easiest for most of us to identify with. <laughs> and I think it's because the dude's a little bit bipolar, okay? <laughs> and uh, I mean, he's just like on a vicious roller coaster ride. When you look at his life, um, I mean, first of all, he's a, you guys know what he did for a living? Anybody? He was a, he was a fisherman. And he leaves his fishing business to follow Jesus. That sounds crazy. He would be the least likely person to, to follow Jesus, and yet he leaves the fishing business, follows Jesus. He's not just a disciple, but he's part of this inner circle of, of three, Peter, James, and John. So he had experiences that even the other disciples didn't have in his encounter with Jesus Christ. And uh, so it's pretty fascinating as you look at his life. And during his, his life, he says some really profound things, but then he also tends to put his foot in his mouth from time to time. It's part of that bipolar, up and down, roller coaster but probably the worst thing that he did was that he denied Christ how many times? Yeah, three times, and in fact, it was at Jesus' greatest peril, is at the end of Jesus' ministry, and he denies Christ before a servant girl. You're thinking, here's him, this tough dude. You'd think that he would really know that this is the Messiah, and yet he denies him three times. And yet what's fascinating about his story is that he goes from denying to becoming an apostle. The word apostle here means personally sent by Jesus Christ. So there was something that happened in his life as a result of his failure that, that got him back on track and then he went out and began to proclaim the living Christ, the resurrected Savior, even to his very death. 
He became a martyr. Church history tells us that when they were going to crucify him as they did his Savior, he refused to be crucified as his Savior. He said, I'm unworthy. Crucify me upside down. And that's what, uh, that's what you have in his story. So here's my question. is what, what went down in this guy's life? What so transformed his life? What was the defining moment in his life? And I believe it was encountering the resurrected Savior. Because there's places in the Bible where particularly, and I've got it there on your notes, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, where it actually says that Jesus came to Peter personally after his resurrection. You can even read about what that encounter, how that encounter happened there in John 21. You can write that down. And then we see in the writing of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, listen to his words. So you know that something really went down in his life. I mean, he was overtaken by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And it says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were blown away that this is God in the flesh. He died on the cross for us, and he was resurrected on the third day. And oh my goodness, I had an encounter with him, and I'll never be the same. And so he goes on to his death to proclaim the name of Jesus. So there's a number of things that we can learn from this. Here's one of those things, is that failure is never final. Guess what? We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. It tells us that in in Romans 3.23. What does that mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means we fail to apprehend how beautiful and desirable God is. We don't desire God's glory above all else. We we tend to let so many other things kind of dominate our thoughts, stir our deepest emotions, and move us to action, what motivates our life. We tend to let anything and everything in creation over and above, above the creator. We all tend to put our faith, hope, and love in something other than God. And yet what you, what you see in this is not so much that he failed, it's really what we do with our, our failure more than anything because Peter runs to Jesus and then if you contrast him with Judas, Judas tends to go the other way. And so between these two guys, you really get a good definition between true repentance and false repentance because with Peter, he was sorrowful for the pain his sin had caused the Savior But Judas was sorrowful over the pain his sin had caused himself, and he went out and hung himself. So so with our failures, the fact is, guess what? We all fail. The Bible's very clear about that. If you don't think that you fail, you're in denial, and you're probably not married. And, uh, And you haven't had your spouse tell you lately about your failures or or give you the list. And so, uh, and so we all fail, but it's what we do with our failure. The Bible really talks about in this idea of repentance is it's, it's a lifestyle. And we're constantly making these course corrections, coming back. And so that's what we need to do. We need to con- consistently make these course corrections. I put there what true repentance is, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 there on your notes. So, so none of us are okay. None of us are okay. You're not okay. I'm not okay. Okay? Okay. Okay, and it's okay to not be okay. So turn to the person next to you and say, it's okay to not be okay. Real quick, do that. Okay, it's not okay to, 
it's okay to not be okay. Okay, I almost got that wrong. But, but it's not okay. It's not okay to stay that way. Okay, you guys tracking with me? Just say okay. <laughs> okay, okay. That's messed up. Um, so it's, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Are you tracking with me? Because he wants to bring transformation. So this is a safe place. Desiree is a safe place to come in here and say, hey, I'm not okay. I'm not okay either, but we need the Savior. And so, so we turn towards him and we come to the remedy, our Savior, because he loves us. He cares for us. He gave his life for us. That's where we're going to find life. And so that's what we learned from Peter. And what, what about the audience? The audience is elect exiles. That's in verse 1. So elect means chosen Exiles means strangers in this world. So, so Peter's talking to second-generation Christians. So he's first-generation because he actually saw Jesus. Second-generation Christian are people that just hear the story about Jesus, and this is what he says about them. It's really fascinating because we're going to eventually get to this verse. In fact, in, in four weeks, we're, we've titled the message True Christianity because he's defining true Christianity for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And he's, he's speaking to these folks, and so he could also be speaking to us, saying, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, uh, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You have been overtaken by the living Lord and Savior, the resurrected Lord and Savior. In fact, nothing has been more satisfying than to know him. See, that's, that's that experience, is to know Christ, who is our most satisfying reality. And, uh, and that, what, that's what it means to be elect, but what is this idea of uh, exiles, strangers in this world? How, how does that work together? Well, here's, here's what I believe as I've studied this, is that the more you feel at home with Christ, the more you'll feel like a stranger in this world. Let me say it another way. The more you're satisfied in him, the more you realize that you're elect and you're chosen, the more you'll feel dissatisfied in this world. Now listen, you've you got to understand that there's a billion-dollar industry out there that tries to convince you that happiness is one, is one purchase away or, or whatever. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He says, if I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the explanation is I was made for another world. So if you would pause long enough, if I, let's just say you and I would go hang out at Starbucks and I sit across the table from you and I say, hey, so, and maybe you don't know Jesus, but you're trying to fill your life with all kinds of things and I begin to ask you some pretty serious questions. Why are you so driven? What's going on? Don't you see that it's not gonna be in a bigger house or a nicer car or a fatter paycheck or more romance in your relationship? It's not going to be found anywhere there. Those are fleeting and they're very unforgiving. At some point, you've got to come to your senses and say, wait a minute, there's nothing in creation, nothing in creation that can satisfy the deepest longings of my heart like the Creator, only the Creator. And so the more you realize that, the more you don't buy into a lot of the, the hype that we have in uh, our American society. And so that creates almost this tension. So this elect exiles, chosen but strangers in this world. So here's, here's how I would define 
um, the Christian life. Because the Christian life is about developing an appetite for God, you probably, probably have never defined a Christian life like that, but that's, that's the Christian life. It's about developing an appetite for God that satisfies more than anything. If that's true, if that's what the Christian life is about, it only makes sense that the more you're satisfied in God, the more you're going to feel out of place in this God-ignoring world that seeks to find something other than God to make us happy. Because that's, that's, our, that's the atmosphere that we, we live in. Here's the next. So what's the agenda? What's the agenda? So that's the author, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the audience, elect exiles, chosen strangers in this world, and then the agenda. And we're going to be spending a few months on this. This is a wonderful agenda. It's finding wholeness in a broken world. Did you notice I put parentheses there? It's, it's more than just somehow in spite of the fact that we live in a broken world. Would you guys agree with me that we live in a broken world? When you look around, just turn on the news. Just watch the news. It's pretty busted up. And yet this, this letter is going to teach us how we can find wholeness. I'm using that word wholeness because the other word would be holiness or sanctification. You know, we're going to use that word synonymously. But through a broken world, anytime you study Scripture too, you, when you come to a letter, you want to find out what are the key verses. There will always be some, somewhat of a key verse that will kind of be the thrust, the theme, maybe the thesis statement for the whole letter. And so 1 Peter 1 Chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, and, and then chapter 4, verse 12. We'll be looking at 6 through 7 next week. But this is how he's defining, uh, you know, really the, the theme of this verse or the agenda is that life is a fiery furnace that can either burn you to a crisp or refine you as pure as gold. So that, that's the theme of the verse. That's the, the agenda. So life is a fiery trial so you're going to go through fiery trials. Many of you have already gone through those. You're going to go through more. And those fiery trials can either make you or break you. So that's, that's the idea. That's why you can have two people going through the same circumstances, and yet one becomes bitter, cynical, jaded, less trusting, weakened character, really very little compassion, and the other comes out better, more positive, seasoned, greater faith, stronger character, deeper love. Why? Why would you have identical circumstances and yet two completely different responses? Two different people going through the same circumstances. One becomes bitter, one becomes better as a result of those circumstances. There is a saying that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. It's not the sun. It's not, it's not the fiery furnace. It's not, it's not the circumstances. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. You can play the blame game all day long. It's not going to get you anywhere. I'm not minimizing what you've gone through, the conditioning, how you were raised, how people have treated you. That can certainly influence your life or, or your circumstances or your chromosomes. I'm not minimizing the influence that has on your life. But it's you. It's you that chooses how you are going to respond to what happens to you in life. Nobody else, nobody forces you to respond the way you respond. It comes down to you making choices. And uh, 
It's not the events of life that make us feel and behave the way that we feel and behave. It's our evaluation of those events in life. It's what we're telling ourselves about those events in life. It's called a worldview. You need desperately a biblical worldview. That's what 1 Peter's gonna help us with because he's wanting us to have a sense of wholeness in a broken world so that we can learn how to respond to the issues of life. And, uh, and so... It's not the sun, it's not the fiery furnace, it's not the circumstances, but it's the internal chemical structure of each substance. What are you made of? What are you made of? I'll tell you what you're made of when you go through a fiery furnace. You're gonna either turn out as a cinder or you're gonna be as pure as gold. Peter, God's word, wants us to become pure as gold, that there's, a, there's something that happens in our lives as a result of that. Listen to what it says in um, the Gospel Transformation Bible, really a great, a great quote. It says here, hardship and holiness, hardship and holiness or wholeness are the twin themes of this letter. Holiness and hardship are inextricably connected because of the way the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. Peter not only sees holiness as necessary for enduring hardship, he sees hardship as a way the Spirit makes us holy. Did you, did you track with that? That's pretty important because here's how it works. Is that, so if you're gonna get through hardship, you're gonna get through the fiery furnace, you need wholeness, but guess how you, you develop wholeness? Through the fiery furnace. Did you hear? That's what he said. So hardship will develop wholeness or holiness in you but you need holiness to get through the hardship. So, so where do you get that? How, how do you get that? Well, you, you know, where, where's the starting point? How did Peter's life so drastically change the gospel? <laughs> the gospel, and, and uh, I mean, he wastes, as I said, he wastes no time telling us the gospel right at the front end, and so, uh, if you don't get this, you're not gonna be able to build the, the, the kind of life of holiness or wholeness that God wants you to have. And so let me give you the gospel. Uh, here it is. And so in verse two, let me read it again. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So in verse two, we see the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. The three persons of the triune Godhead are active in our salvation. So here's the first one. Number one, under how the gospel changes us. The Father chooses according to his foreknowledge. Now, I'm not gonna get into it. This, deals, this delves into something that can be somewhat controversial, and yet it's, it's amazingly beautiful, and it's, it's a bit of a, a wonder, the complexity of both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And, uh, but, but you need to know what that means here is that he has put his love on you before the beginning of time if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And that can be overwhelmingly beautiful. I'll never forget when I received the phone call to start the fire academy to become a Phoenix firefighter. I mean, I was stoked. That was just a, it was a great day. And I'd like to think that uh, they chose me because I was awesome. <laughs> but if you guys know me, <laughs> hey, you didn't have to do that. Where's the ushers? Oh, wait a minute. He's one of our band members. Oh, we got to keep you here. Okay. 
Yeah, 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 you, yeah, you know me. You know me, and, and, and there was this God factor that played, played the biggest part in that. But my excitement for that is nothing compared to the excitement that I have as I have more and more realized that I was chosen by the creator and the sustainer of the universe to be a part of his team, to be a part of his family, that he had put his love on me before the beginning of time to be his child. And guess what? He didn't choose me, nor did he choose you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, because you're awesome. He chose you and he chose me because he's awesome. That's amazing. And the more you begin to see that, the more you're captivated by that, the more it sinks deep into your heart and it begins to revolutionize you. Um, How do you know whether or not you're chosen? I mean, that would be the question that I'm sure that some of you may be asking. Well, I can see that some of these folks are chosen, but what about me? Am I chosen? This is like I said, there's a, there's a complexity to it, sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. We're not going to get into it, but, but, but I can tell you this, that if the gospel message, and we talk about the gospel message, there's something in your heart that begins to stir. If the gospel message is the most amazing message you've ever heard, chances are pretty good that he's drawing you in because otherwise you're, not gonna, you're just going to kind of yawn through it and go, mm, no big deal. You see, if you love him, if there's something in your heart, you're saying, yes, oh, I love him. Wait, he loved you first. You love him? He loved you first. You want him? He wanted you first. You understand that? That's crazy. Because the only way that you would want him or love him is because he first wanted you and loved you, and he's pursuing you. And so that's part of that choosing. That's how you begin to understand, wow, That's amazing. And so when you begin to have this validation in your heart, this is the validation you have been looking for your whole life. I mean, it's it's an unbelievable gift because the gospel frees us up from having that desperate need for the validation from our spouse or our kids or, or parents or our job or more money. I mean, I mean, hey, I love the validation of my wife, okay? There's no doubt about it, okay? But I can't be desperate for it. I'm gonna wreck our relationship if that's the case. I, and I nearly did. I, I've gotta be operating out of an abundance of the fact that the king of the universe validates me. Therefore, there's a sense of, of compassion and, and, uh, and contentment and completeness in him then my life can be an overflow rather than this kind of deficit where I'm in this neediness and, and driven and desperate. You guys track with me on that? I mean, that's, that's, that's really, really important, and that's, that's that first part. And so that takes us now to the next one. So, so that's the Father's work. Now, uh, what is this? What is the gospel? Let's define that. Let's drill down a little bit deeper. The Son accomplishes the work by his blood and resurrection, so the son accomplishes the work by his blood and resurrection. Now, if you don't get this, everybody look up here. You gotta get this because you ask the average person in our society today, what is the gospel? Most people don't know what the gospel is. In fact, I've seen people reject 
the gospel, and then I say, well, okay, so you're not a Christian, you don't want to be a believer in Jesus Christ, so tell me what is it, and they would define something to me that's not even the gospel, so I would tell them, you're rejecting something that's not the gospel. You're rejecting something that isn't, isn't the gospel. I would reject that too if I was you. So here's the gospel. The gospel is not good advice at what you must do to be right with God. The gospel is good news about what he has done to make you right with him. Don't ever forget that. Jesus didn't come to this earth to give us good advice. By the way, all the major cults and religions of our world today would fit into that category. It's good advice. Do these things, jump through these hoops, live this moral life, live you know, this code of ethics, you live this, you hit this, drill this down, you got it. Christianity says this, that Jesus came and he lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. He did it all. There's nothing else needed. It's all been done for you through Jesus Christ to bring you into a relationship with the Father. It's amazing. See, that's the truth of the gospel. It's not good advice of what you must do. It's good news about what he has done to make you right with him. Um, let's, let's talk about that just a little bit more. If you were to look at your life, my life, all the lives of people on this planet Earth, all of our human problems are symptoms. All of our problems are symptoms. And our separation from God is the cause. And the cause of our separation from God is our rebellion against God. We've just, we wanna do life our own way. And, uh, and that creates all kinds of problems in our life, but there's a great verse, you can write this down, part of your notes, John 10, 10, it's a theme verse here at Desert Breeze, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That first part of that really is a commentary of our culture, our society, of, of this fallen world. But the second part of that is, is absolutely breathtaking. It says that Jesus, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. He didn't come to give you a list of rules, he came to give you life, it's a gift. Fullness of life. And what's amazing about our, our predicament that we find ourselves in, in our sin, in our, that, that we fall short of the glory of God, is that God does not condone our rebellion, nor does he compromise his standard, but he does something absolutely stunning. He assumes our sin and sentences himself, and he pays the debt in full for us on the cross. When he was on the cross, he said a number of things. One of the things he said, he said, it is finished. You know what that means? Paid in full. Paid in full. Sin debt. You have access into the throne room of God. Pretty amazing. Absolutely amazing. So when you look at the cross, the cross should remind you of two things. The first thing that it should remind you of is that you were so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. The second thing is that he loved you so much, he wanted to die for you. It's Jesus' indispensable and costly death that restores us to a place of favor and friendship with God that melts and transforms our heart. So all you need is need. And there's a lot of people that are too proud and they don't have need. You tell me which belief system is more inclusive. It's Christianity. All you need is need. Humility. Come to him. Yep. Yep. I need a savior, and you got one through Jesus. Now, 
take us to the next, next point here. The Holy Spirit applies the work to our lives. So the Father chooses according to his foreknowledge. The Son accomplishes the work by his blood and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit applies the work to our lives. God himself comes and lives inside of you. That thought in itself is pretty amazing. And there's no other religion that makes such a claim. When believers live in the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what begins to take place. As we begin to recognize that when we put our faith in Jesus, in his finished work, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. John 16, 13 through 15 tells us that Christ is magnified. He's made more real to us. It's one of the reasons why we're overcome by trials of life. Trials seem so big and overwhelming is because we don't have a big view of God. We need Christ to be more real to us. That's so the work of the Holy Spirit to begin to make that more real to us. We succumb to temptations is because we, we actually believe that we're gonna be more satisfied by chasing the things of this world as opposed to pursuing Christ. And so when Christ becomes more real through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're not overwhelmed by our trials or our temptations. Romans 8, 15 through 16 also says that fear is nullified. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says the confidence is intensified because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That idea of sealed is that we have this security and preservation. But this is what I love most about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is that most importantly, through the Holy Spirit, the deepest longings of our hearts can be engaged with and satisfied in Christ. That you enter into a relationship with the God of the galaxies. You can know him, you can walk with him, you can experience him in your life. That's what you were created for. Now, verse three is where he wraps it up. Verse three is the result of the salvation that we have through the triune Godhead. Peter breaks into this spontaneous doxology and, um, which teaches us that sound theology leads to soul-satisfying uh, doxology. Your spirituality is, is measured by your level of amazement at the grace of God. And so his level of amazement, I mean, just goes through the roof. Look at verse three. I mean, that's what that is. It's just a, it's a proclamation of who Jesus is. In fact, let's, let's read that together. You guys ready? Sit up in your seat, nice and loud. It's back up behind me and on the big screen. Here we go, one, two, three. Blessed be the Father and God of our Lord. Okay, let's stop. Let's start all over again because did I, did I start too quickly? Are you guys with me? Oh, blessed. Oh, I, I switched it. I did not. Okay, I'll fess up. I'm sorry. I messed you guys up, didn't I? That's pretty common around here, isn't it? Keep your eyes on Jesus, please. Okay, here we go. Maybe I better read from up here. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh my goodness, that is a wonderful verse. That's an awesome verse, isn't it? A couple more verses that talk about this new life that we have in Jesus. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So while we, you were an enemy, you didn't want to have anything to do with God, he reconciled you to the Father much more. Now that you're reconciled, much more. Now that, you, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Oh, another verse, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Oh my goodness, that's wonderful. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. And I pray for those... Uh, 
this morning that maybe have never made a confession of faith in you. I pray that they would do that this morning. If you're here and you've never made a confession of faith in Jesus, I would invite you to do that. You do it by acknowledging your sin that separates you from God, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins, and then confessing him as as your Savior and your Lord. You may not like what Jesus said, but if he rose from the dead, he proved to be who he said he is, and it would be crazy not to follow him. I would encourage you to follow him. Give your life to him. God, I pray for those that are doing that this morning. I pray for those of us that are renewing our commitment to you. God, we love you. We worship you. If you've made a commitment to Christ this morning, maybe for the first time or you're renewing that, don't hesitate to mark that on the card, drop in the box. We'd love to celebrate that with you. But more importantly, if, if God is really a priority in your life, prayer, Bible study, being involved in a local church family is gonna be a priority. And I would encourage you in that. God, thank you. We love you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Stand with us as we conclude our time together. The next couple of weeks, we're going to continue our teaching series in this book. We're going to talk about how fiery trials develop us rather than destroy us. So let me end with what it says in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In Jesus' name, amen.